But I, but I want to say that what we need to do is we've got to keep coming back to Jesus all the time. We just need to grow in His grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. All glory be to Him, both now and forever. Amen. That's the way I want to be. I want to project to us today. So I want to just share with you today some of the things that um, I have had to overcome in my mind to be able to uh, receive and understand a revelation of God's grace. And I, I do want to make the point that it's not just, this is not knowledge. We're talking about a revelation. We're talking about God showing you something that you wouldn't have just been able to pick up and figure out in your head, but it's actually a work of the Holy Spirit in you to show you to understand how good God is and the grace of God in our lives because it is a wonderful thing that Jesus died in my place as a sovereign act of his favor and there's nothing I can do to add to that I didn't earn it I didn't deserve it you didn't deserve it but God just poured out his love and his goodness upon your life and friends uh, I, I hope we never stop talking about that it wouldn't worry me if every Sunday we just talked about that because, you know, that is such a powerful truth, a life-changing truth, the grace of God. And we can keep on exploring that for a long time. Uh, friend, this is not one way of looking at the gospel. It is the gospel. This is the good news about Jesus, the good news that he died in my place. And I didn't deserve it, but he freely poured out his love upon me. So I want to talk a little bit about my personal journey and some of the things that God has um, ha had to do in my life. So even though the, the message or the gospel of grace is everywhere in the New Testament, and it pops up in quite a few places uh, in the Old Testament, like even what Steve was sharing this morning is another example of that. But lots of places in the Old Testament as well of the Bible but yet it still is not a natural thing for us to understand. And I've been a, I've been a Christian since I was a child. Uh, I've, been, I was, I've been a pastor for, a, I was a pastor for 30 years and planted a number of churches and led a number of churches and did a lot of things. And I, I don't want to give a list of my achievements, but I did a lot of things as a Christian before I ever understood what grace was all about. And I know that because of that, there's probably other people that might struggle with it as well. Unless I'm the only person that would like that. I don't know, maybe, maybe I was just a, thick, a bit too thick in my head and I just couldn't get it. But, um, but only about 10 years ago, I began to understand what the grace of God is really like by revelation. It was a revelation from God. And you know, often we can't or don't see the grace of God because of mindsets that we pick up in childhood or with things we've embraced in life. And I want to talk to you this morning about some of those things, some of the entrenched mindsets, things that, well, things that I've had to overcome uh, so that I could receive the message of God's grace. And maybe you can identify that with that as well. I hope that there are some others here that had these same problems as I did. So otherwise, I'm kind of wasting my time this morning. But, uh, but I want to say that some of these things that I'm going to share with you this morning creep up on you. And you might not realize it, but they incrementally affect your thinking and the way you look at life. And so they, they skew our perspective so that we can't see the grace of God. Or we don't really appreciate and value God's goodness and God's grace in our life. And the first one, here's the first one, what I'm going to call a work first mentality. Work first mentality. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and... Uh, uh, this, this is actually a, a modern translation of a, 
Um, uh, if you just go back to the previous one. Uh, this, is, this passage is actually very well known. You might recognize it as, uh, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not from yourself. It's a gift of God, not of our works, so that no one can boast about it. You've heard that verse before, possibly or probably. Here's a modern translation of that. Now God has, now God has us where He wants us, with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all His idea and all His work. All we do is trust Him enough to let Him do it. So that's it. We don't save ourselves. You can't save yourself as good as you might think you are. I hate to disappoint you, but you can't save yourself. Only God can save you. Only Jesus can save you. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. And that's true. I've talked to people like that, that are quite proud of how good they are, how good their life has been. And In fact, I was a little bit like that myself, as I'll share in a moment, a bit like that until I began to see how futile and erroneous that thinking was. The next one says, the next verse says, no, we, didn't make, we don't make or save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join Him in the work He does, the good work He's gotten ready for us to do, work we'd better be doing. I kind of love how that... It's, it's so full of the grace and the goodness of God. But at the end, he gives us all a little bit of a boot up the backside to, to be getting, doing the work that God has called us to do, which is kind of, I think we all need that a little bit sometimes. But what I want to do this morning is I want to show you the sequence of things that's in there. And if you just go to the next slide, it says there's, there's three things in, the, in order there. The grace of God that he has poured out upon us and then the faith that we have to receive that, to take hold of God's salvation. And then the last one is the things that God prepared for us to do, the works that we should be doing. Now, here's the thing, folks. What I've discovered in life is that that's the sequence. God's grace and faith that saves us, and then we do things for Him. That's the sequence that God has given for us. But all too often, what happens is, we reverse the order because when a person becomes a Christian, you know, they, um, they open their heart and receive Jesus into, the, into their heart and, and it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing to do. And, uh, and then someone says to them, well, that's wonderful. It's fantastic. You've, you've opened your life to God. You've been born again. That's fantastic. Now, this is what you have to do. You need to get your Bible and read it every day. Now, mind you, I've done this many, many times myself with lots of people who've given their life to Jesus. Um, read your Bible every day, pray every day, make sure you get to church every week, make sure you put money in the offering, you've got to get baptized, you've got to do this. And there's a, it's quite a long list of things that you have to do. And uh, you know what we, end, we do? We end up creating the Ten Commandments of the New Testament. That's what it ends up being. All the things you should do now that you've become a Christian. And you know what? None of those things are wrong. They're all things we should do. They're all great things to do. But the problem is that in the doing of those things, before long, it's not hard for that to become the focus. I just need to do this. 
If I do that, 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 and that. And we lose sight of the fact that God sovereignly reached down and took hold of us and He saved me. We lose sight of that. We switch the order. We put the cart before the horse and we get it back to front. And that's what can easily happen. Why do we do that? Why does this happen? I think it happens. I'm glad you asked. I, I think it happens because of our Western work ethic. I was just thinking about this. You know, it's very common in the Western world for us to say, and you, you know, you've probably been raised as a child, you know, get your work done first and then you can go and do what you like doing or then you can have afternoon tea or then you can, you know, have some enjoyment. Work first and then comes recreation or then comes enjoyment after that we call it delaying gratification have you heard that phrase before it's a very very common phrase and there's nothing wrong with that of course it's a very good thing to do I was reading some of the research around this uh, during the weekends uh, a professor of Stanford University he got hundreds of children and put them individually in a room just on their own and got a table so all that was in the room was a table and, uh, and the researchers were there. And they put, he put a single marshmallow on the table. This is called the marshmallow experiment. And he said to the, this child, the, the child, or they said to the child, we're going to leave the room. And if you can leave that marshmallow there, when we come back, we're going to bring another marshmallow. But if you eat that, that's all you get. You won't, you won't be getting a second one. And they left the room. And they did this with hundreds of children. And so what happened is quite a lot of them, it was all over Rover. They just, as soon as that door had closed, bam, I'm just getting that thing. And there was quite a few also who tried, you know, they, they, they really tried hard, but eventually they gave in and they ate the marshmallow. And then there were a few who didn't. They just left it there and got the reward. And what happened is they followed those same children into adulthood they tracked them for 40 years and discovered that the ones who left the marshmallow had far better educational outcomes, better health outcomes. They had a lot less issues with substance abuse. They had um, a lot better uh, social skills and social outcomes. Their life was better on every indicator uh, that they were analysing. So here's the point. Uh, delaying gratification is actually a good thing. But guess what? It operates at a human level. That's a human level. And it's not necessarily the way God thinks because everything we, you know, we understand a certain amount of things at a human level. God's ways are higher than our ways. Here's what God says. God says, I want you to rest first in me. God says, I want you to rest in me. And in the strength of that rest, you're going to be able to work. Rest first and then work. In fact, for those of you who might have seen our website, it's one of the values that we have as a church. It says, I can be productive and effective on the outside because I have God's peace and rest on the inside. Resting first and then working. It's a great thing about the ways of God. And I was thinking about Psalm 23. You know, Psalm 23 is one of the most well-known passages in the Bible. And it says, because God is my shepherd... I'm not going to put it on the, on the screen, but because God is my shepherd, I have, I have everything I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. 
And then it goes into all the other things that happen after that. Like, you know, um, maybe you might have challenging things to, do, to deal with. And maybe, you know, you go through the valley of the shadow of death. And maybe then there's spiritual warfare that might be happening. All this other stuff. But what, what, where's this, what's the starting point? The starting point is, I've already got everything I need. And then it's got, then it says, God, you're going to, oh, there's your rest. I gotta, I'm, I'm experiencing your rest and your peace and your restoration. That's where I start off. And then I can go through all these other things that I have to go through. Why is it? I was thinking about this. Why does it say, he makes me lie down in green pastures? Why does it? Why is that? Because, you know, it's not natural for us, right? It's not natural for us to rest. You know, we, well, for me anyway, I'm a, I always want to get something done. You know, I'm trying to get things done. Is that you? But I want to tell you, God's way is rest first and then work. He doesn't leave the work out, by the way. Rest first and then work. That is God's way for us. So this works mindset, putting work first, is a big part of the reason why, for me, and this is a bit of my personal story here, why I've been burnt out about three times in the past as a pastor and couldn't continue to do that work because I thought I had to solve everyone's problems. I thought I had to get everything done. I just thought I just had to make it happen. I've just got to get out there and make it all happen. You know what? It's just a recipe for burnout. What we've got to learn to do is rest in, in God's provision, in His strength, and let Him lead us. And we're going to find that our life is going to work a lot better. So the key to receiving and living in His strength learning how to rest in him second point i've only got two points and this one is this this is something else that can block you from receiving god's grace and from understanding his grace as revelation number one number two sorry i I focus on repentance now this is two things i'm gonna put two things together here and and stick with me you know um Focusing on repentance and what I'm going to call creeping self-righteousness. These are, these are two, th- two sides of the same coin, but I'm going to put them together, as you'll see in a moment. It'll, it'll all make sense in a moment. So, I, you know, I've heard, um, when you talk to some people about the message of God's grace, God's grace, some people say, oh, you know what, you've just gone soft on sin. You know, you don't, you don't want to tell people about their sin and you know, they need to repent. And so that what people say sometimes, and I've, I've literally heard people say this, and I know, it's, I know it's a belief that some people have. You just should be telling people about, about repenting and, and are dealing with their sin. You need to tell people how to repent from their sin. Now that's code, by the way, for the pastor should be telling people they need to repent of their sin. They don't want to do it themselves. They want me to do it. Okay. But here's the problem. I want us to analyze that statement for a while. So we, we, meaning me, should be telling people how to repent from their sin. Just think about that statement for a moment. I don't know about you, but to me, I can see just a really big us and them mentality just shining out from that statement. It just looks like I'm the one who's got, well, well, it might be you, uh, your life together. But that person over there, they need to repent of their sin. Does this make sense, what I'm saying here? And it just sounds so much like the story that Jesus told of the tax man and the Pharisee. And we're going to look at that 
for a moment in Luke chapter 18. It says this, Jesus told his next story to some who were complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance. And I'm sorry to tell you, I'm sorry to tell you this, but there's been times in my life when I've been just like that. That's called self-righteousness. Complacently pleased over their moral performance and looked down their noses at the common people. I wouldn't have thought, I wouldn't have thought I was doing that. I wouldn't have believed that if you told me. Two men, Jesus told this story to those kind of people. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax man. Now in these days, tax men, uh, apologies if you're a, you work for the tax office right here. But in Jesus' day, tax people were notoriously corrupt. They were the most corrupt people around. Uh, you can read the history and look at that. So the Pharisee, Who's the religious guy posed? He posed and prayed like that. Can you imagine it? He posed and prayed like this. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like <laughs> I can't believe this that he would actually, actually anyone would actually say this, but oh God, I thank you I'm not like other people, robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid, like this tax man down here. I fast twice a week and tithed on all my income. And I can imagine God. He's looking down and he says, really? You do all that? Wow, I'm impressed. God is not impressed with how good we are. He's not impressed by us. Don't, don't think that you can impress God with your, your lifestyle or your obedience or your tithing or anything. We don't impress God with anything. Listen to this. It says, meanwhile, the tax man slumped in the <laughs> this is where we should be this is you and me right here the tax man slumped in the shadows his face in his hands not daring to look up said God give mercy forgive me a sinner and look what Jesus said he commented the tax man not the other the tax man not the other went home made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to simply be yourself, you'll become more than yourself. So what God is looking for a heart that is open to Him, that knows that we need to change, knows that, you know, I don't have it all together. You know, and, and so, so what I'm saying, friends, is this. Self-righteousness is a major, major blockage to... Uh, receiving an understanding and a revelation of the grace of God. And, um, you know, I, I, I want to tell you a bit more about my, my story here. You know, because you can become self-righteous without even knowing it. Because I, I, don't, I don't think I did. I, I think I was self-righteous and I didn't know it. That's the problem. So I grew up in a, in, I, you call it a Christian home. My mum my became a Christian, I think, when I was about uh, the age of four or so. And I remember, uh, you know, she used to, to take us, she used to have a, a little Sunday school, my older brother and myself, out, out on the front veranda of our little house. This is down in country Victoria. And, um, and, uh, but we, we used to go to church and uh, we were going to a, um, uh, an Assembly of God church in those days. And it was, uh, it was, it was actually pretty good. It was, was, was amazing. And uh, there were, God, God was moving in there. God, God was moving in that church. And I started reading the Bible. 
uh, gave my life to Jesus at around about the age of 10, I believe. And, and I, I experienced God's closeness in my life. I, I knew what the power of God was like. I, I saw miracles happening. And I saw the, the power of God at work in that church. It was, I tell you, it was, was pretty good. It was impressive. And, and so because of that, I started reading my Bible. I had a, had a King James Bible, which, was, which I really valued. And I read it. Actually, I read it through a number of times from cover to cover. And uh, as, a, as a child, and I'm sure it made an impact on me, even though I wouldn't have understood a fair bit of it. Uh, but but uh, I read it through. And, and I, here's the thing. I never became rebellious as a teenager. Now, I, I don't know if I, I hope I'm not being proud in saying that. But I, I never, you know, went off the rails or became crazy. Although I don't doubt there were plenty of opportunities if I'd wanted to. But you could say I had a fairly sheltered kind of a life. It was, it was fairly sheltered and church was a big, was a big part of it. And, uh, and there was a lot of occasions when God was moving in my life and moving me toward himself. So eventually, when I was uh, an early, a young teenager, about 14 years of age, we moved up to, to Chinchilla on the Western Darling Downs. My parents bought a property there. And there was a great church there as well, fantastic church and a, and a youth group. And So we got involved in that, and uh, we were very, very faithful in getting involved in church. And uh, it was great because there was really, it was really a season of revival, wasn't it, Del, in those days? And, and uh, God was moving powerfully in that church. And so uh, after another few years, we, we got married. And, and then uh, I, I, had a, I led a Christian band for a, about seven years, and we did a lot of good stuff. And that was all great. And we were, we were praying and seeking God for his plan for our lives. And anyway, God led us very, very clearly to leave there, to go up to far north Queensland to help out some people planting a church. Uh, this is um, Pam... And Jeff know all about this. They were up there as well. And so uh, it was a wonderful time anyway. So the senior pastor, uh, who was Pam's uncle, and I was, I was, there. I was on staff actually with, in, the, in that church and after, after a while. And um, I used to preach a little bit and I was the youth leader and the music director and a few things. So uh, I remember one day a conversation we had. Now this is, I'm talking 30 years ago, folks. Um, Oh, 40 years ago. I was, yeah, 40 years ago. Sorry, 40 years ago. Long time ago. And I had a conversation. I've never forgotten the conversation. And because uh, it went like this. We were in the car going somewhere. You haven't heard this story, Pam, I don't think. Maybe. We are going somewhere in the car. And, um, and we were just talking about, you know, the gospel and about sin and about the way God works in people's life. And I, and I said to him, I, you know, look, there's got to be a place for... You know, he was talking about, you know, sin and human brokenness and things like that. And, and I was probably feeling pretty good about myself. And I was, uh, you know, I was just thinking, well, there's got to be a place where you get over that, you know, where, where you know, you're not really seeing so, so much as a sinner, you know, but you're, you're really, uh, you're doing okay. I was trying to justify myself, I think, in some way. And he just turned to me and said, listen, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, whoever says he has no sin is deceiving himself and the truth is not in him. And he actually nailed me to the wall right there in that moment. And I've never forgotten it because it's so true. If anyone thinks they don't have any sin in their life, they're kidding himself. You would be kidding yourself if you think that. We all have some points or some parts of our life that still need redeeming, still need the, the grace of God and the forgiveness of God to come into our heart. No one can say, there's nothing wrong with me. 
If I, well, you can say that, but you'll be deceived if you do. The Bible says, if I say, whoever says there's no sin in their life is deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them. Now, of course, it's God's grace that overshadows us and superimposes His love and His goodness and His forgiveness over us. And that's what we should focus on. We need to focus on the forgiveness of God. I don't want to be sin conscious. I want to be forgiveness conscious. I want to be grace conscious. I want to be thinking about Jesus and His work on the cross and what He's done for me. That's what's really important. Anyway, about, about a long time after that, about 10 years ago, I was having another discussion with some, actually my son-in-law, about grace. And I thought I understood the grace of God. And he said to me, no, you don't get it yet. You don't get it. And he could see that I was still self-righteous. Still self-righteous. And I couldn't see it. And, and he started giving me books to read. And I couldn't get it. I could, just couldn't get it. And he gave me another book called The Gospel in Ten Words. And I've, I've given a few copies out to some people here. The Gospel in Ten Words by a guy called Paul Ellis. And I began to read this. And, and all the pennies started dropping. And all the pieces started coming together. And I began to understand the grace of God for the first time. It was an incredible time. And... And, uh, and, I, and I just determined then uh, that this is the message that I want to proclaim from now on. Because this is, this, this, is, this is the revelation of the, of the goodness of God in my life. And like I said before, maybe you struggle with that a bit because you haven't seen so much in your life. It doesn't mean that God is not good. It, doesn't, it just means that that's the way your life has played out. And there can be various, there can be causes for that. And things can, can you know, make that happen. But I want to tell you, God is good. And God, is, God is, His love is so, so powerful and so necessary in our, in our life. So the big question in my mind was always, how do people really change? I'll try and bring this to a close. How do people really change in their life? I'd heard philosophies like, you know, you do the crime, you do the time. It's a, it's a common belief. And our legal system operates like that. Another philosophy was, which I'd embraced, people only really change when they're forced to change. You know, and I'd, I'd read some of the boundaries-style teaching. Some of you have read that perhaps and know about that, and I've, I've seen both sides of that, the good, the good side and, the, and the, bad, the downside of that as well. But, but um, I, I'd always been taught, if you want to be a Christian, change your life, that is repent, repent, then God will meet you, and then the future will begin to open up. And you know what, friends? There's nothing of the grace of God in that. There really, there really isn't. Now, I'm not saying we should, you don't need to repent. Of course, we, I need to repent. You need to repent. We all need to repent. But if, if you spend your life talking about that, you really talking, you spend your life talking about sin and human problems and human brokenness instead of getting our focus on Jesus on His work for us and what He's done and the blessing that He's poured into my life, that's when things begin to change. So the Apostle Paul, Put it this way, he tipped that idea, repenting first and then God will accept you or God will forgive you. The Apostle Paul tipped that on its head completely and he put it this way in Romans chapter 2. You didn't think, did you, that by just pointing a finger at others, you would distract God from seeing all your misdoings and from coming down on you hard? Or did you think that because he's such a nice God, he lets you off the hook? Better think this one through from the beginning. God is kind but he's not soft. In kindness, God in God, in his kindness or his goodness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us 
into a radical life change. That's called repentance, by the way. So what it's saying, another translation says, don't you understand it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. So friends, what we need to do is get a better picture of the goodness of God. We need to see how much God loves us, how good God is in your life. And so Paul puts this idea of turning towards God, repentance as an outcome of experiencing God's goodness in your life. Focusing on sin is not what gives you victory over sin. Focusing on Jesus is what gives you victory over sin. Because he is full of grace and love. And I love that verse. It was, it's, uh, uh, this verse was, um, in, I think, one of the very first sermons I ever preached a long time ago. It says that they marveled at the gracious words that came out of Jesus' mouth. They marveled at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. It's Luke 4.22. He, he is gracious toward us. Look, there's a lot more that I was going to share. I'm going to have to let some of this go. Um, I'll just give you this one example about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus in Luke 19. It's a story you may have heard before. This guy, who was another tax man, by the way. So he would have had, you know, he would have had a, a past. He would have had a history, blah, blah, blah. And it says that he, was, he really wanted to heard about Jesus and he wanted to see Jesus. So, so it says that he, he ran ahead of the crowd when Jesus was coming to the city of, of Jericho. And he climbed up a tree. And he looked down because he was, he was particularly, he was short of stature. And, uh, and Jesus saw him as he was walking along. And he said, Zacchaeus, today I must come to your house and have lunch with you. He invited himself for lunch. We were talking about that the other day, weren't we? We were. Not a bad idea. <laughs> Let's not go back there. Jesus invited himself to lunch at Zacchaeus' house. Probably a mansion overlooking the city. I don't know what it was. but And Zacchaeus was stunned. He just said he just stood there and stunned. Um, he stammered apologetically. Master, then you know what happens? Zacchaeus starts repenting. Because he's just, God has just opened his heart to him. He's just, he's just been accepted by God. And he, then he starts repenting. He says, oh, if I've stolen anything from anyone, I'll just give it back. I'll give them back twice as much. And, you know, if, uh, just, you know, God, I'm, I'm sorry for all this stuff. So the goodness of God and the acceptance and affirmation of Jesus opened the door for him to repent of his, of his sin and to have it, to, and a changed life. And then Jesus says, today is salvation day in this home. He never prayed the sinner's prayer. He didn't, he probably had never, ever read the Bible either, by the way. But here he is, Zacchaeus, son of Abraham, for the son of man came to find and restore the lost. And that's the thing we've got to get a hold of, folks, that you're not, going, you're not running after God. You're not trying to find God. He is running after you. He is pursuing you. He's challenged. You know, you're, you're here today. I, I really believe this, that you're here today because God is running after you. He's chasing you and something's happening on the inside. So how does life change really happen? It happens when I surrender my life or when I begin surrendering my life fully to him. That's when my life begins to change. And uh, when I say, God, I'm yours, take me and make me. When I start cooperating with the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't make my life change that way. It's still got to be, you know, the Bible is full of references. And if we had time, 
Maybe we can talk about this another time. But how does life change really happen? Well, the Bible says that the, that work of, there's a, this big word in the Bible called sanctifying. I'll try and simplify it. It just means to make you more holy. You can't make yourself more holy. Jesus makes you holy. God makes you holy. And it says, and the Holy Spirit makes you holy. There's lots of different things the Bible talks about in that regard. But I've got to cooperate with Him. I've got to say, God, just have your own way in my life. You know, like it says in, in the, um, the book of Romans, chapter 12, it says, Paul says, just present your whole life to Him. Present yourself to God as a sacrifice, everything about your life. You're, you're going to work, you're every day eating, sleeping, uh, life. Just present it before God and say, God, here I am. Change me and make me different. Can we have our creative team to come back up to the stage this morning? Um, you know, maybe you're just on that journey where you're beginning to experience the grace of God and the goodness of God in your life. Maybe, maybe you've begun to see something today for the first time. You've just begun to understand that, you know, God, I can see your goodness in my life right now. Maybe you've never seen it before, but your eyes are beginning to open up a little bit to it. Can, uh, friend, that's how it happens. It, it's not something you think through and figure out in your head. It's got to be something that God shows you. The grace of God is a work of the Holy Spirit in our life to see and receive and understand today. And so, oh, it's going to, why don't we stand up in God's presence?